0: I enjoyed that last song, I enjoyed all of them, but that last song that we sang uh, in particular, I think that's a fairly new song, if I'm not mistaken, at least new to us, and uh, it, um, in the lyrics, obviously it was talking about rejoicing in the Lord, and then um, it mentioned in there uh, the hope that burns within us, and uh, I like to remind you occasionally of the importance of hope in our lives, Obviously, faith, hope, and love are three great Christian virtues. Um, I've heard one author say if we could develop those three virtues in our lives, everything else would fall into place. And hope, just so we're clear on this, when we sing about the hope that burns within us, let's make sure we understand what hope is. You know that hope is not just a, gee, I really hope the lions win tonight. There's a there's a there's a possibility out there and I don't know how it's going to go and although I think they're going to win tonight but that's not what hope is and you know that but hope isn't merely just confidence and a firm belief that something will happen either You see, you don't have real biblical hope. You don't have the virtue of hope without joy in it. And so here's what hope is. It's looking to the future and being confident, joyfully confident that there are good things coming for me, that I know without a shadow of a doubt that in Christ's love and care that I eagerly anticipate the good things that are coming my way. That's hope. You don't have hope without both confidence and hope without joy i'm looking forward to what's coming my way and so when we sing about praising the lord and rejoicing in him we can do that because we have hope in us that good things no matter what happens in the next few weeks or months or years even we know as believers that ultimately we have good and prosperous things coming our way as we spend eternity on the new heavens and the new earth with the lord so just to encourage you that way, I like to remind you of that great Christian virtue from time to time because it, it so easily slips from our minds in the midst of the difficulties of life and the struggles of life and the joylessness that we can encounter sometimes in the middle of our lives. And so I like to remind you of that. Let me pray for us as we uh, get ready to look at John chapter 17, this important passage. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for this writing that we have of the prayer that you prayed to God the Father the night before your death. We're so grateful to have these words in front of us this morning and have the opportunity to study them and look at them together and be encouraged by them. What an amazing thing to know that you prayed for us. And so I pray that this week, our our request would be that this week and next week, as we look into these words, that our hearts would be thrilled at what we find, that our affection for you would grow, that our daily lives would be changed, and our worship of you would increase. We're thankful for the opportunity, and we thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. People tend to listen with interest to a president's last speech in office. Most presidents know that their time in office is coming to an end. And so they, with their staff, put a lot of time and effort into the last speech that they will give as president, the last words that they will say as president. And they don't tend to fill the entire speech with jokes or with descriptions of all the food that they have loved at the White House over their years or of their favorite Christmas decorations in the White House. Instead, they tend to focus on their most important accomplishments in office, what they see as significant that they have done during their administration. And then they try to give a vision for what they would like to see done in the future based on the advancements that their administration has brought during their time in office. A president serves for four or eight years and they make thousands of decisions. Probably hundreds, some days alone, they're constantly making decisions during their time in office, and that last speech can help the public know what the most important of those decisions were. It's really a way for us to almost see into the president's heart and his value system and to see what was most important and most valuable to him during his time in office. So you think about that with a president, who's obviously an important leader in our world today, and the significance of their last speech while they're in office, and now you open up to a passage like John 17, and we don't have a last speech of Jesus. Obviously, he's going to say words after this when he's on the cross. He's going to speak when he's on trial. We don't have a last sermon here from Jesus, but what we do have is we have a last prayer that he gives and it happens to be the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in the Bible there's a reason that I titled this a little bit tongue-in-cheek the Lord's Prayer this is not what you typically think of when you think of the Lord's Prayer but it is the most in-depth in many ways and the longest prayer that Jesus that we have recorded of Jesus in the Bible it's very intimate it's very very personal These are words directed from God the Son to God the Father. We're we're getting insight, we're listening in to a conversation between members of the Trinity. And this prayer gives us insight into the values and the priorities of Jesus. What an amazing thing to get to look into. Jesus prayed this prayer only hours before he would be arrested and tried and crucified. And this prayer comes before his crucifixion, right before it, but it also comes at the end of his last dinner with his disciples. And so this is a significant moment in his earthly ministry, in his earthly life. And so when you study this prayer, when you read this prayer, you and I have the opportunity to look into the depths of the heart of the Son of God and see what he truly values. And what he truly loves. What are his top priorities? And when you get to see his values and his top priorities and understand what he loves, now you're getting to look into his heart and it hopefully will grow our appreciation for him and our love for him as we get to know him better through this. And so we're going to spend this week and next week in John chapter 17. And here's what we're going to see. Four values of Jesus revealed in his prayer to the Father. Four values of Jesus revealed in his prayer to the Father. Now you can see in this statement of here, I don't really have any practical payoff in this, right? I don't have a so that you and I can do this. That's intentional. I'll be honest with you, I don't really have any practical payoff for this. And I'm not sure you should either as you come to this most holy ground. Here's what I want for us this, next, this week and next week. I just want you to look into Jesus' heart. I just want you and I to sit down and gaze into his heart and understand what he loves and what he values. Because I think at the end of the day, there's nothing more practical than that. It's not a list of to-dos and to-don'ts for this coming week. But what it does is if you can look into his heart and understand who he truly is and what he truly loves, that will change you at the most basic and fundamental level. You will grow in faith, hope, and love. And if that author is correct, everything else will fall into place. One author, I love this, described it this way when we come to a text like this. Since faith in Christ is what really changes our hearts and makes us new. Gazing at him, it is hearing the gospel of Christ that really helps us live the Christian life. So, if you want to change people's lives, it doesn't help to talk about their lives and how to change them. You have to tell them about Christ and about and what he does to change us into new people and make us his own. And that's what we're getting the opportunity to look at today. So four values. And here's the first one. We'll, spend, we'll get two of these this week and two of them next week. The glory. Here's what Jesus values. The glory of God. The excellency of God's character put on display through the gift of eternal life. Look with me at the beginning of verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, what words are we talking about? It's been a few weeks since we've been in the Gospel of John, back before Christmas. And so what words is is the author talking about here that Jesus has spoken? Well, all of chapters 13 through 16, I think, are what he's getting at. And all of chapters 13 through 16 are this last Dinner, this Last Supper, the upper room discourse that he has with his disciples. It's Thursday night before his death, just to remind you where we are in the timeline of the Gospel of John. And in these chapters, he's been preparing his disciples for his death and his departure. And those are kind of the same thing and kind of two different points that he needs to make with them. He's really pressing home the fact that he's going to die, and with his death, And then we know, ultimately, his resurrection, he's going to depart from them. He will no longer be physically present with them. But in these chapters, since he won't be with them, he promises them that he's going to give them another helper of a similar kind to him, but one who will come to them and will dwell in them, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so he's preparing them and trying to build up their confidence and their faith and telling them what's going to happen. And now he opens his heart up to them and prays this prayer for them. Look further into verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Of course, this is the hour that has been mentioned multiple times in the Gospel of John. If you go back and read through John, you'll see this mentioned throughout the Gospel, sort of preparing you for the time when the hour will actually come. But up until in the early part of the Gospel of John, it says that the hour has not yet come. You have a passage like this in John chapter 7. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? because his hour had not yet come. They couldn't take him and put him to death because the time wasn't right for that yet. Then in John 12, 23, Jesus answered them and says, the hour has come. It's here. It's it's imminent for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And at this point, In the last week of his life, he says that his hour has come, the hour of his death. Now, you'll notice, though, in this passage in John chapter 12, and then in our text in John 17, look at the rest of this verse. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Both in John 12 and in John 17, when the hour comes and arrives... Jesus ties the hour of his death to God's glory. Those things come together. God is glorified through the death of his son. And it's a reciprocal glory, right? The son glorifies the father, exalts him, puts his character on display through his death. And the father glorifies the son through the son's death. Both of them are glorified and honored and exalted through the hour coming. Now, before we move on in this passage, I just want to reiterate what it is that we're looking at this morning and remind you of this. We are looking into the depths of Jesus's heart. We're understanding here at the beginning of this prayer his absolute highest value You want to know Jesus, you need to understand there's nothing more important to him than this. He wants nothing more than for the Father to be glorified. Everything he does is meant to put the character of God on display. Think about in the Gospels the times that we read about God the Father taking delight in his Son. We see that at both his baptism and at his transfiguration. He calls Jesus his beloved son and he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. I take delight in my son. Other places in scripture, I won't read them to you, but describe God as being a blessed God or you could translate that a a happy God. He is joyful Our God is not a sour-faced and grumpy deity. He is exalted in joy and happiness. He's filled with delight and pleasure, and he finds pleasure in nothing more than his Son. The relationship between the Father and the Son has always been one of joy and delight and pleasure and the desire to see the other exalted. John Piper has put it this way, God's pleasure, his happiness, his delight is first and foremost a pleasure in his son. And here we read that it works vice versa too. The the son has no greater desire and joy and honor than to look outward and see the glory of the father and want others to see that glory and honor exalted as well. And he has that value and that desire to the point where he is willing to come to earth and die in order to make that happen. So how does his death bring glory to God? Look at verses 2 and 3. Since, right here's the explanation. Since you have given him, the Father has given the Son authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus desires to give glory to the Father. He's willing to come and die. The Father gives Jesus authority over all to do what he pleases, and he uses that authority to lay down his life in order to give eternal life to a group of people whom the Father has given to Him. So they're working together to bring themselves honor and to glory, glorify one another and to exalt each other. And it's through the gift of eternal life coming to those whom God has chosen that the Son and the Father are glorified. And in verse 3, you get the definition of eternal life. And this really gets us to the heart of how the death of Christ brings glory to God. Follow the logic. Look again at verse 3, and then we'll, we'll trace this whole thing out, all right? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the Son, in eternity past, has known and loved the Father desired to see Him exalted and glorified, taken delight and pleasure in Him. He delights, the Son delights in the knowledge that He has of the Father to the point where He wants to spread that knowledge. He wants others to experience the joy of knowing the Father. He wants others to see the beauty and the glory of God's character. Because he knows it will bring delight to them and it will honor God. And in order to make that happen, in order to bring others into that knowledge, he dies on the cross so that they can be forgiven of their sins and brought into a relationship with God. And he does that in order to grant them eternal life. And eternal life is defined here in verse 3 or summed up as knowing God. Jesus dies to bring glory to God by inviting us into this loving relationship, this joyful and happy relationship between the Father and the Son. Eternal life is not just existing forever. Don't think of it that way. It includes existing forever, but that's not the heart of it, and that's not the definition of it. We get it here. It's to know God the Father And the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ the Son. Eternal life is the type of life that actually knows God. Not just knows about him. So let's talk about that. We use that language a lot, right? We don't want to just know about God, we want to know him, truly know him because that's what eternal life is and that's what we've been given in the gift of salvation is the opportunity to know, truly know God, the Father and God the Son. So let me try to help. Every year on New Year's Eve, our family has this little tradition that we do where I ask some questions about the year we've just completed or are about to complete. And then I ask some questions about the coming year and we all write our answers down and then we save them and then we laugh and look at them the next year and sometimes we're too embarrassed to share our answers. But it's really a good experience that we have, we have grown to love. And one of the questions I ask every year is who is one person alive today who you would most want to have lunch with or, or spend time with? They have to be alive today you know, you can't pick Jesus because that's everybody's answer. So they have to be alive. He is alive today, but physically walking the earth, it has to be someone in that, in that vein. So who do you want to spend time with or have lunch with? All right, so pick a person in your mind, all right? You've got five seconds to do that for you right now, all right? There you go. You don't say it out loud. Please don't say it out loud. We don't want to know. All right, so you got your person in your mind that you want to spend time with, you want to have lunch with, you're curious about, okay? My guess is that most of you, that person is someone that you have never interacted with personally or have never met personally. It's really sweet if you picked your spouse, but come on, go go a little bigger with this, right? All right? So imagine that you bumped into this person in the airport. Okay? You, you run into them. Maybe you're on the same flight. You end up sitting by each other. You never would have expected. It's crazy that this has happened. This is someone you're totally following and interested in and curious about, but you just see them on the news. You read what they write. Maybe you see them on TV, but now you get the opportunity to sit down and talk with this person. You have a really, really good conversation. It's natural, it's fun. They seem to be enjoying their conversation with you, which sort of blows your mind, and you exchange phone numbers at the end of the flight or at the end of the conversation. Now you keep it going. You keep talking with them. You're able to start texting them. Now you're meeting up with them regularly for lunch. You're talking on the phone. You're building a friendship. You meet his or her family. And now your families are getting together and you're regularly spending time together in conversation. And so here's what's happening. Now you're beginning to understand how this person sees life. You're beginning to get his or her perspective on things. You know their views. You know what they love. You know what they hate. You know what's important to them, what they value. Now... You hear about some situation in the world, some circumstance, and you know how this individual, your new friend, would respond to that. You don't even have to think about it. You know what their opinion on it is because you know that person. You don't just know about them. You actually know them. That's a little glimpse into what it means to know God and not just know about him. You're not just reading about him. You're reading his word. You're understanding what he loves and values, and you're having personal interaction with him through prayer and through the text of scripture. You're beginning to build a friendship with him, which takes time and takes conversation and takes interaction. And that's the goal of eternal life. Jesus has come to earth to die in order to to put God's character on display and for us to know that character and to be brought into a relationship with him. Look at verses four and five. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Right, The goal of this, of all the work that Jesus came to do is to reveal God, to die on the cross and to bring us into a relationship with him so that we may know him. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And Jesus is going right back into that relationship again that he had with the Father of delight and happiness and joy and glory, the one that he had before the world existed. So, this is his highest value. It's the glory of God through the gift of eternal life as we come to know the Father and the Son, through the death of Christ, through his revelation of God. So these first five verses, this first value of Jesus has focused on his relationship with the Father. This is the most important thing to him. But obviously this relationship that he has with the Father has massive implication for us. And that's where Jesus now turns his prayer and we get the second value that he has here. Which is Something that should astound us as we read about it. Jesus prays for the glory of God, his highest value, and then look what else he values. The preservation of his disciples through the word of God. So we've already seen one command or request in verse 1. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. That is written in Greek as a command. Jesus is in some sense, is commanding the Father. But this is exactly how you and I pray to God as well, isn't it? I mean, we're not commanding Him as if we have authority over Him, but we use our words as if we're requesting and we're commanding things of Him, right? Please heal her, we pray. Provide for me. That's spoken like a command to God when we pray. Well, there's another command that Jesus gives. There's only three, really, that he gives in this whole passage. And the second command that he gives is found in the middle of verse 11. So I want us to jump ahead to that. And then we're going to circle back to verse 6 and build up to verse 11. So I hope that's not too confusing for you. But go ahead to verse 11. And I want to show you this next command that Jesus prays to the Father. Right in the middle of the verse, he identifies God as Holy Father. And here's the command, or here's the request. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So that's the the second request that Jesus makes. This is a prayer for Jesus' disciples to be preserved Kept guarded in God's love, and for them to be preserved as faithful to Him even after Jesus physically departs from the earth. Now, why does Jesus pray this for His disciples? To understand that request, you need to go back to verse 6. So let's go back there and we're going to build up to verse 11. This is Verses 6-10 through give us sort of the basis or the foundation of that request. What has Jesus done? Here's the question we're answering. What has Jesus done to make it possible for the Father to keep and to preserve the disciples without Jesus physically present on the earth anymore? Look at verse 6. Here's what he's done. I have manifested... revealed your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So we've already seen this language of the Father giving the gift of certain human beings to be saved through the death of Christ, giving them to the Son. Jesus says here that he has come to earth, and he has made the Father's name known, his character known to these disciples, That was a primary purpose of the incarnation of Jesus. It's the work he's done. We've read about that throughout the Gospel of John. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John 2.11, after turning the water into wine, this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Right? He put God's character on display. He revealed who he was, and his disciples believed in him here. So what's the result? Look at verses 7 and 8. So Jesus comes doing that work, and now verse 7. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. They have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So the disciples don't get everything at this point. Their theology is not locked down and perfect, but they do understand some of these basic truths. They're going to get more after the resurrection of Jesus. It's going to become a lot clearer, but the ministry of Jesus has been effective in them, right? They know that Jesus came from the Father. They know that Jesus truly reveals things, truths from God. And because of that, because Jesus' ministry has been effective in them, look at verse 9. Now he prays for them. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. What's beautiful, I think, about this is Jesus here is not praying for every human being who's ever lived. He's not. There is a right sort of discrimination that is being made here. He is praying for specific people. He's praying for the ones that have come to eternal life because of the Father's choice and the Son's sacrifice. I mean, Scripture is clear on this. Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. John chapter 10. Jesus In Ephesians 5, is a good husband who loves his bride and gives himself up for her. There is a particular and special love for the church, for his bride, for his people that you and I can rejoice in. Yes, God loves the world. And he loves the world even in its sinfulness and its badness. He loves what he has made and does not want to see it continue in sin. But there is a special and particular love that Scripture talks about that is directed toward those who've been given from the Father to the Son. And that particular love puts God's glory on display. Look at verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So this is the foundation for for why Jesus prays what he prays in verse 11. Things are going to change for the disciples now right? Jesus has done all this work. He's manifested God's glory. He's going to die on the cross for them. He's done all of this work for them, been physically present with them, and now things are going to change. Look at verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. A dramatic difference for the disciples who are present with him. And so he prays this, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus is departing out of the world, and so here's his prayer. Keep, preserve, guard these followers of mine. And notice specifically that he asks that God will keep them connected to his joy. Look at verses 12 and 13. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. Which you have given me, I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except Judas, the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. Where does the joy of Jesus come from? As we saw in verses one to five, it comes from his relationship with the father. It's in knowing God through personal relationship. There's fulfillment and satisfaction and beauty and joy in that relationship. And Jesus understands this. And so he prays that the Father will keep them in that love and in that relationship, aware of it and rejoicing in it. And he knows that they are going to need this prayer for preservation and guarding and keeping because of what's going to happen to them after he departs. Look at verses 14 through 16. It's not going to be easy. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, several things for you to notice here. There's some tension built into this prayer that we need to notice. Followers of Jesus have been separated out of the world. We've been called out of the world. There's a particular love that is set on us that pulls us away from the world and the values and the ways of the world. That separation from the world brings the hatred of the world, right? We're no longer like them in what we value and what we love, and there's some amount of hatred because of that. And yet, despite that tension of being called out of the world, and yet hated by the world, Jesus says he's not planning to take us out of the world physically. So he's going to leave us in this situation where there will constantly be difficulty and tension and hatred. And that's the interesting relationship that we have with Christ- as Christians with the world around us. We are purposely here, intentionally here. We are called to participate in earthly life here. We're called to engage in relationships with those around us who do not know Christ. And sometimes things might get uncomfortable and sometimes they will not like it very much that we know Christ and reflect His character in the way we live our lives. We are characterized by different loves and different values. And so there's tension there. And yet, we are called to be in the midst of the world while not being defined by the same values and loves as the world. And that is a tough thing to navigate. And that's why Jesus prays here for God the Father to keep and to preserve and to guard his disciples. Jesus does not want us to withdraw from the culture around us into little communities that rarely, if ever, interact with the world, or know people who are unbelievers. Quite the opposite. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This is the mission. This is the call, right? This is why he's praying for us to be kept and preserved. Jesus sends his disciples, knowing the difficulty, into the teeth of the world with the message of the gospel and tells them to go and do good, to love, to serve, to minister, to use their lives in sacrifice for others the same way that he did. And he knows that there will be moments of hatred, we will be despised, And he knows that the temptation when we're hated will be to become like the world. To adopt the ways and the values and the culture of the world in order to make things easier. But he prays here for God's preserving power in our lives. And he prays for this power and then he identifies where it comes from for us. Here's something immensely practical for you and I. When we see this tension, right? The world's going to hate you. You're taken out of the world. You don't value the same things. But Jesus sends us right back into the world and says, I'm not going not to take you out of it physically. I want you to minister in the world. And there's that tension for us. Now he tells us, and here's the key to living out that tension in your lives. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth your word is truth. So here's the key. To sanctify something, this is the same idea of being holy. To be holy or sanctified is to be set apart for special use. So in the Old Testament, there are tools that are used in the temple. Those are sanctified or holy tools that are only used in the temple. They are set apart for God's purpose purposes. You and I are set apart, sanctified for God, and then we're sent into a dark world, and God keeps us set apart, keeps us and preserves us through his word, through this book, through reading, studying, and knowing scripture. That's how he keeps us and preserves us. Listen, I can't overstate for us this morning how important and vital God's word is for all of life and in particular for you and I to to thread this needle of being engaged in our mission in the culture without becoming like the culture. Sometimes it seems nearly impossible to do that. And so we, we tend to pull one way or the other. The Word of God, engagement and interaction and knowledge of the Word of God is absolutely necessary for us to maintain that posture of service while keeping us from adopting the values of the world. And it's necessary to keep us in joyful communion with the Father as we know Him. Now my my guess is that when I struggle to thread that needle it's because I'm not in the word like I should be. It's because I'm not utilizing this gift and this tool that has been given to me to keep me set apart. That's when I struggle. And for most of us, if you ask us why we're not in the word of God, we would say, well, it's really hard to find the time to do it. Life is so busy for me. So I want to push back on that a little bit, as I've had that idea pushed back in my own life this coming week, this last week. So I read some interesting stats this week I'd like to share with you, okay? So track with me a little bit here, all right? The average American reads between 200 and 400 words per minute, right? Pick up a book, read it, 200 to 400 words per minute, average, okay? So let's say you're not quite all the way up to average and you're 200 words per minute. Fine, fair enough. We'll take the lower end of that. Do you know how many hours it would take you to read the entire Bible? 66 hours, which is kind of nice. 66 books, not an hour a book, but it would take you 66 hours to read the entire Bible, okay? If you're reading on the lower end of that average speed, words per minute. Guess how many hours the average American spends on social media each year? 705. Guess how many hours the average American spends watching television each year? 2,737 each year. Now, maybe you're not average. Probably most of us in here aren't that with television. Let's be honest, right? But even if you're only half of that, You could cut a very small amount out of your television and social media consumption and you could read through the Bible three, four, five times, at least once this coming year, right? You could read other Christian books that point you to the word of God and that increase your love and your faith in Christ. Now this is not to lay guilt on anyone, right? Like I'm not trying to do that and make you feel bad this morning, but I am trying to lay out some facts for you. I want to jolt you out of this idea that we just don't have time to interact with the Word of God. Most of us, there may be exceptions, most of us have some measure of time that we could pull from something else and give to the Word of God. And I want to encourage you in your engagement with God's Word because this is a key part of your preservation in the faith. This is a key part of you knowing and experiencing the joy of God. God preserves us, sanctifies us, and keeps us for his glory and for our mission in the world. Let's not forget that as well. We're here to do something important, to go out and to serve the world by sharing the gospel, and he keeps us for that mission through his word. Jesus did this exact same thing for us. Look at verse 19. And for their sake... I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. He's done this work for us, and He calls us to imitate Him as we are set apart by the Word for God's glory and for our good. Now, I think in, in this whole prayer, the most amazing part of this is that Jesus reveals His values to us, and we are a part of this. I mean, it's shocking. That you and I who have been called to faith in Christ and have received him and are here this morning wanting to hear about him, he prays for us here and he actually values our preservation and wants us to walk in love and gives us the means by which to do that. It's an amazing thing and I hope that this week the knowledge that Jesus prayed for you and for me and for our church body on the night before his death, I hope that that will encourage you and will motivate you to pursue knowledge of him this week through his word. We'll look at the next two of his values in the rest of this prayer next week. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we're again thankful for this prayer. I pray that you would use it in our hearts and lives, challenge us, motivate us, Help us to get a better understanding of who you are through your word. May we see your heart and see what you love and what you value, and may we respond by cherishing the same things that you do. I pray for our church body this week. I pray that you would keep us by your word, sanctify us, set us apart, set our our hearts, our affections, our emotions, our loves apart from the world through your word that we would be more influenced by the scriptures than we are by all the other influences in our lives, Lord, that this would be primary for our good and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray.